Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome, everybody. I'm Scott Walker. You just heard the bells. We're just getting started here at Post 9. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by someone who says the S&P 500 will hit new all-time highs next year. You heard me say that, right? New all-time highs next year, despite this sell-off and the bear market. We begin, though, with our talk of the tape, whether the hardest-hit area of the market, technology, has fallen so far that it now presents a generational buying opportunity. Not my words. They're the words of Dan Ives. Let's welcome the Wedbush analyst to Post 9 to make his case. You really think this is a generational buying opportunity? Well, I think for the right stocks, but because our, our viewpoint covering tech since late 99, in these downturns, you got to separate the froth from what we believe are the names that are going to be able to navigate and valuations that we believe are way oversold. So I look at software, cybersecurity, I look at names like Microsoft, you look at names like Amazon, Apple, among others. That's why to us, we're not just going to sit here and say you paint them all with the same brush. It's a bifurcated team. Okay, let's talk about the mega caps specifically. Because who's to say that these stocks deserved to be, deserved to be where they were before this recent sell-off? I take a look and I, and I raise this issue and I asked our team to put these numbers together because I wanted to raise this with, with you. If you look at where the, the PEs were for all of the mega cap all-stars, right? From the pandemic low, let's call that March 2020, okay? Apple's PE was 17. All-time high S&P, it got up to 30. Microsoft 23 got to 34. Alphabet 22 got to 25. Meta from 18 to 24. Nvidia from 27 to 58. The point being that a lot of these stocks, if not the whole group, got that burst because of all that the Fed was doing from liquidity, right? Now that the Fed's pulling that liquidity away, why shouldn't these stocks go back to where they were around the time that the Fed injected this liquidity? These stocks didn't run up in the manner in which they did on fundamentals, did they? And, and, I, and that's a great question. That, that would be a big debate. And, and ultimately, I just view it as fundamentally, when I look at the trends over the next call two, three years, when I look at the cloud trends, I look at semis, I look at AI, I look at what I believe is the fourth industrial revolution. You stress test these numbers. Look, this is the fundamentally different. The buy side, they're already looking now, 2023 numbers, assume mild recession ahead of the sell side. So my point is that numbers here relative, I mean, if you look at MFANG from an EBITDA perspective, I mean, 12 times, you're starting to look toward what I would almost be market multiples for what I view as probably the best growth names across tech. But see, like these stocks were used as, in some respects, bond proxies in, I think, a large respect, defensive plays in an uncertain world during the pandemic. Can you make the argument to me today that Apple deserves to be at a 30 PE? Or does it deserve to be closer to the 17 where it was before the Fed put all of the, the punch in the bowl? Okay, so that's a good example. Let's just look at Apple. Yeah. The, the services business is a different business today, and I believe going forward, than it was two years ago. 
So you're talking about an $80 billion revenue stream that basically has been a big part of the re-rating in Apple. And it's always been my contention, Apple's a name. When you look at it, it's straight PE. Instead of some of the parts in terms of looking at services and hardware, you ultimately, what I believe is, you know, undershoot what should be the core valuation. So my point here is that I'm not saying the froth, the web vans, the global crossings, what we saw in 2000.com front and center, that's not gonna happen. I'm just saying you have to separate the have and have nots and valuation here relative to when we go back to 0809 and even 0102 relative to growth, we view now as the time for the names that we've talked about in our tech playbook to own them. But is, is Apple's services business 13 points of valuation better than it was two years ago? Well, I, I think, and, and, and I think when you look at Apple's services business, you look at the growth, you look at ultimately the margin on the services piece. I think it's something going into the pandemic, the market was basically assigned, now it's worth three, 400 billion. And at one point in the pandemic, we're looking at 1.5 trillion. So I think a big difference with some of these names, I'd argue the same with Amazon. Some of the parts, what's the cloud business worth? With Google, I'd argue right here, you're assigning minimal growth and minimal valuation to the cloud. You stress test numbers on the other side of this, get every bare argument out there. But it just comes down to like, Scott, we've talked to 25 of our checks this week, CIOs, you know, product managers trying to understand spending. Yeah. Stress test these areas, it's firm. And that's why we'll cut, now you'll see numbers get cut because the street will ultimately assume a mild recession. Here's the greatest question, if not problem, that investors have today. We don't know what the right valuation should be for a lot of companies that ran up, and I'm not just talking about the high flyers. All of these are well-respected companies with clearly defined fundamental businesses and their growth trajectories are, are what they are. I'm not arguing that in, in any respects whatsoever. It's simply a matter of we are all trying to figure out what the proper valuations are when the liquidity gets pulled away versus where the liquidity was when the spigot was turned on full blast. No doubt. And that is a very difficult question to answer. NVIDIA, for example, from 27 to 58, multiple doubled. I mean, how do you assess something like that to where it should be today, irrespective of this most recent sell-off? So let's just take NVIDIA as a good example. When I look out the next three years for NVIDIA, for an Apple, for Microsoft, for cybersecurity, the, the growth opportunities over the next three years, basically, I would say, is more than the last eight to nine. So to me, it all just comes down to, where's the growth relative to valuation from a growth perspective? Now, you could do, you could do a triangulated with PE, free cash flow, and I get, but my whole point is, if you, if you just look at free cash flow and PE, and just say straight, you would have missed the Teslas, the Googles, the Microsoft, the Salesforce.com coming out of what we saw in 09. And that was really our point of our note today to basically just level set valuations and what we want to own and what we don't. You like to use the words table pounders when you're talking about stocks that you just want people to, to buy right, right here and now. And I know that you break things up into different areas of tech. As you said in your own words, the, the haves and the have nots, you break things up into different sectors. The three best names right now across all of your areas of coverage are what? It's th a give me three. Three, but I, it's Apple, it's Palo Alto on cybersecurity, and it's Microsoft because of the cloud theme. Because fundamentally, those are the three names to me as a proxy 
they best encompass where I believe the massive growth and valuations today that I believe are baking in 2023 numbers already coming down by 5 to 10%. That is an important one because I think the next four to five weeks, sell side would just assume, okay, we, we're going to have a recession. Cut numbers ahead of management's guidance. And once that happens, I think you saw it with Rivian, you saw it with other names. You start to now get to the point where you could at least you know, start to own these names based on valuation. I believe we're close. Just today's bounce, and then I got to go. Just today's bounce in Apple gets back, it's up 3%, okay? Gets back up to 147 and change. Does that make you feel better at all about where this stock is going in the near term? Because I spoke with Mark Newton yesterday. He's the, he's the technician who works with Tom Lee over at Fundstrat. He's like, man, I mean, it's not, it's not my base case, but the stock could go down to 133 or so. I mean, the stock looked a little bit broken for a little while before today. Because it comes out. The China zero COVID issues, everyone knows June's going to be a very tough quarter for Apple. Now it's happening today, and I believe you'll see it over the coming weeks. Street's going to toss June quarter out for Apple. Look at September and December. Look at the next year's numbers. And I think when that starts to happen, that's how we believe the bottoming process starts to happen in tech. And I believe that's starting to happen. All right. Well, we'll see if we put anything together between, let's say, the last 30 minutes of yesterday and then the full session today. The NASDAQ has obviously had a good session. I'm going to see you in a little bit. Uh, you'll be back with me to talk about on the backside of our Twitter conversation what it really means for Tesla, which is an interesting discussion to have in and of itself. That's Dan Eyes, but as I said, he'll be back with us. Let's get to our panel right now. Courtney Gibson, the executive vice chair at Loop Capital Markets, a CNBC contributor as well. Katerina Simonetti, senior vice president, private wealth advisor at Morgan Stanley. Ladies, it's great to have you with us. Uh, Katerina, I begin with you first. Uh, what about this move today? Is this bounce worth anything? Does it make you feel like we can do anything on top of this? Scott, thank you for having me on the show. It certainly is better to end the week on the positive note versus then the negative note. But we are in the middle of the bear market. And what we tell our clients is to see these type of rallies exactly what they are as bear market rallies and not to get overly excited about them. We also tell them not to get overly scared about the dips in the market and not sell out of fear because there is a lot of positivity in this market as well, although because of all the pressures, sometimes it's hard to see because we have high inflation, we have slowing earnings, we have hawkish Fed. But what we're also seeing is this earnings revision trends. And we, in our view, and I know you have Mike Wilson on a lot and, and you hear his narrative that we believe that these earnings revisions are eventually going to lead to market normalizations where companies are going to be able to actually meet the earnings expectations which will serve as the catalyst to the next bull market because, in his view, market cycles are getting shorter. But you can't, I mean, I know you cite Mike Wilson, but you, you can't agree wholeheartedly with his perspective on the market if you still think that we can rise to 4,400 by the end of the year. And that's not your bull case, that is your base case. Well, that's correct, Scott. And so far, he has been you know, pretty correct in his expectations. And with all of the positive view to in the long run, we're also seeing a lot of market volatility throughout the this, this entire year because market pressures are here. And then on top of the normal pressures that we were expecting, now we have the geopolitical risk with the Russian-Ukraine war that puts pressures on energy prices, on prices of food that, you know, of course, are affecting consumer sentiment. So we are concerned 
upfront about all these things, but we see market kind of working its way through all of these issues. And mm -hmm. towards the end of the year, you know, we're expecting a certain level of normalization. So, Court, it's good to see you as well. Welcome to Overtime. Look, the last two Fridays have been horrible. I mean, I remember, you know, looking to my left at the board and seeing 900 plus declines on the Dow each of the prior Fridays. So we have a little bit of a respite today. Does it make you feel better about where we may go, even if it's in, in just the near term? Brad, it's always so wonderful to see you. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I've been talking to our desk over at Loop Capital, and we all kind of agree that this has actually been a pretty orderly sell-off. Although the headlines have been painful, my personal portfolio is screaming pain right now, it is somewhat of a reset. But I think the, the light at the end of the tunnel really is that we are looking at a healthy economy. There's a little bit of kind of a Fed overhang right now that we're obviously dealing with, but, but let's, let's kind of peel back this onion a little bit. You have corporate balance sheets that are the strongest they've ever been, the healthiest they've been on record. The consumer is healthy. Jobs, more jobs than candidates right now, right? I think we all know what that's been looking like. When is the last time you saw that? The consumer, right? Two-thirds of GDP is the consumer. Two trillion dollars amassed during the pandemic. Think about that number. I know most of that's in your wallet, Scott, but $2 trillion that was amassed during the pandemic, that is pent up demand. It's causing some of this inflation, but I think it's also going to help us to have, again, an orderly reset as we move forward, slow down some of this hot growth, but it's also going to allow us to move back to a market where companies that are doing well will be rewarded and those that are doing poorly will not. That's what this market should read versus a rising tide lifting all boats. I just wonder if the economy court is as strong as you suggest that it is, or if it has the very early feelings of a scratchy throat. And it, you go to get the vitamin C, that's not available anymore because the Fed just took that away. And then you go get the airborne, but you can't get that because, you know, the Fed's taken that away too. And the economy actually is weakening quicker than people think. You look at the consumer confidence number today from you, Mish, that was below 60. You just get a feeling that maybe things aren't as strong today as people would otherwise suggest because they're looking in some of the wrong places. The travel economy, of course, is strong because of this pent-up demand in which you suggest is there, and it, and it clearly is. But once you get past that, I just wonder, you know, maybe it's a little bit weaker I'm not saying it's tremendously weak. We're having a recession next week or anything of the like, but it's a little bit weaker than some would like to believe. But Scott, one thing I've been waiting to talk about is this whole fear of recession, right? I hate the fear mongering. Two quarters of negative GDP says recession. How many have we come out of? We're not talking about a 2008. We're talking about two quarters. And that is, again, when we talk about a reset. Rising prices are really eating away at the real value kind of of the savings, right? Real income is kind of flat over the last six months or so, which, which does imply, right, that real consumption is going to slow. That, too, is okay. We're not talking about a catastrophic end to our world. We're talking about good companies where people have discretionary income, spending their dollars at those good companies. We're talking about good companies investing. We're talking about real profits. We're talking about stock pickers being rewarded versus Courtney closing her eyes and being able to kind of throw a dart at the board and make 10, 20% returns. Those days are gone, but Scott, that's okay. It's okay. You can find good names in this market. I think the last guest, I thought he did an incredible job analyzing the market, in particular tech, in particular when we talk about 
technology companies and how we have really pivoted into a world where tech is going to lead, whether it's old tech, i.e. a Microsoft, or whether it's fintech like a Square or PayPal, our world is changing. And, and those good companies that have solid business cases and good management mm -hmm. teams, strong balance sheets are going to do well. Dan Ives is blushing now. I should let you know he's still sitting to my left, and he perked up when you said his name. Hey, and I looked over at him, his face him. was a little red. <laughs> Court, <laughs> That's I appreciate okay. you it. <laughs> you have a good weekend. That's Courtney Gibson, too, Katerina Simonetti as well. Ives is going to be back, as I said, shortly. All right, up next, deal or no deal? Elon Musk putting his Twitter takeover plans on hold. Our next guest is all fired up. He calls it a circus show. If it wasn't TV, he might call it something else. Maybe he will on TV. Others have. We are drilling down on the fallout and later a bold call for your money. One market pro says stocks are heading back to all time highs. He makes his case when overtime returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura and now it's electric. Introducing the all electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We are back at overtime. News that Elon Musk has put his Twitter deal temporarily on hold, sending shares of that company plummeting today. You can see it right there, down about 10%. The obvious question now, whether it is really just a temporary thing or if the deal is really in trouble. Let's ask Casey Newton of Platformer. Dan Ives, as I said, is with us here as well. He's going to talk to us about the Tesla side of the story. But, Casey, I want to talk to you first about your reaction that I saw on Twitter today to this deal being allegedly temporarily on hold, that Elon still committed to the acquisition, as he said. You said, and I quote, I'm trying to think of a more obvious lie in the history of American business. Please tell. Yeah. Well, look, uh, we've known for a long time that Twitter has some automated accounts. They've reported that to the SEC for years now. So the idea that Elon would sign a binding contract to come to, to, to buy the company and then come along after the fact and say, well, hey, wait a minute, let's see how many bots on the platform. It just strains all credulity. We both know that this deal looks much more expensive today than it was when he bought it. And you have to assume that that's what's really going on here. You think that's the true motive? He's, he's looking for a price cut. What about just trying to walk altogether? Because it's not as easy, perhaps, as some would suggest that it is. Oh, just write a billion-dollar check for the breakup fee, and you can wipe your hands of this whole mess and just go on to do whatever you do. 
That's right. He has to have cause. I mean, there are still scenarios where he would not wind up owning the company, you know, even in that case. But at the end of the day, it does seem like a price cut is more likely. Why go through all of this only to try to walk away after lining up all the funding? I mean, as recently as a couple of days ago, he was still lining up new investors to participate with him in this bid. So the only asterisk I put on that is that this is a highly volatile, unpredictable person. And there are some days when I I, I don't even know if he knows what he's going to do next. Your reaction to what Gordon Haskett, uh, the analyst over there, tweeted, uh, you know, Twitter's made mention of this 5% spam figure in past filings. Musk has evidently decided to weaponize it. That's their word. He has since tweeted he's still committed. We don't see that tweet being worth the price of digital paper it was printed on. They're clearly casting skepticism that they think that he really is still committed. Do you truly believe he is? Well, um, I, I guess I do. Like, if if I were to sort of, um, you know, guns on my head, I do think that he still wants to be in control of this company. But you know, to that tweet. Um, Elon very purposefully decided not to do any real due diligence on this company. He chose not to look at any non-public information about it before he spent $44 billion on it. So that's one more reason to be incredulous at the idea that bots have anything to do with what's going on. Yeah, you you actually, and, the, and by the way, Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal, he, he tweeted out uh, some, some interesting things a little while ago. Um, in which he says, I, while I expect the deal to close, we need to prepare for all scenarios and always do what's right for Twitter. I'm accountable for leading and operating Twitter, and our job is to build a stronger Twitter every day. He really, you know, he, he discusses the fact that they, they made some leadership changes over the last 24 hours that he felt he had a need to address the market for today. You have been doing your own reporting inside Twitter in which you suggest employees told me today, quote, there's a mood of exhaustion. Rank-and-file staffers have little to no faith in the board or CEO, Agrawal. Expand on that. Well, so yesterday, Parag fired Twitter's longtime head of product, Kevon Bakefour, who had been doing, frankly, a really good job, was one of the, the sort of most uh, productive people at the entire company. Parag also fired the head of revenue. Now, if you really expect that this deal is going to close in two to three months and Parag is going to get bounced out the door and make $30 million, $39 million for his troubles, why would he be cleaning house right now? So no one inside Twitter that I've spoken to really has a good theory on why you would do this now and not wait a little bit longer to see what's actually happening with this acquisition. Same questions I would have. Why would you do that now if you truly do believe that the acquisition is going to close? And if you were going to say what you did, why didn't you do it yesterday after you made these leadership changes? Are you motivated by the fact that Musk did what he did? And I know you're laughing because, I mean, I think a lot of people are thinking about that. I mentioned Ives is next to me still to my left. Tesla shares are higher today. Twitter goes down. Tesla goes up for obvious reasons. What does this mean, big picture, for Tesla shareholders? And we've talked about it. it, it since it's down $300 billion, it's changed his mind. I mean, this is a dog-eat-the-homework excuse. I mean, fundamentally, in terms of him trying to either get out of the deal, walk for a billion, or basically talk down price. And, it, look, it's been a circus show, obviously, across the board for Tesla holders as an overhang. And then even when you look at the Twitter response today, Look, unfortunately, it feels like watching the movie Airplane. It's just been a, a debacle situation, and Musk has obviously just added fuel to the fire. I mean, there's been so much cynicism around this to begin with and, and skepticism, if you will, some suggesting that the whole thing was a ruse to begin with to be able to sell some Tesla stock at or near the high. What's your response to that? My response is Tesla at 1,000. He was confident to get the deal done, leveraged some Tesla shares, 
Now, all of a sudden, stocks down 300 billion changes the mindset. And also, when you start to all of a sudden get, whether it's margin calls or just more Tesla stock that he's going to have to ultimately add, that's why now you're starting to look for ways to get out of the deal or significantly talk down the price. And for, for Twitter, for its board, for its company, I mean, backs against the wall because right now they're caught between rock and a hard place. But you would think that for Tesla shareholders, this is a good thing, right? I mean, having less of Tesla shares levered to a possible transaction is a good thing if you're the analyst um, you know, looking at the stock. It's $100 per share at least overhang. And ultimately, as a Tesla investor, the nightmare scenario always was Musk ultimately buying Twitter because ultimately now you get caught in an ARB situation and it's been overhang for Tesla. That's why Tesla investors don't want to see Musk in any capacity at Twitter. It's basically an inverse relationship between Tesla and Twitter. You've heard all of the excuses today. Casey, uh, he makes his own rules. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He usually gets away with it. So why should this be any different in the way he's thinking? But seriously, what, what about his cred? Um, given where we are now, and obviously unbeknownst to us how this truly is going to end up. I mean, I think you said it. On one hand, this would seem to damage his credibility in the public eye. But on the other hand, so what? He's still the richest man in the world. He does what he wants. Regulators might throw a fine at him here or there. Uh, but it seems like in this case, he really does still have the upper hand. One note that I would sort of put on that is keep in mind just how weak Twitter's board and management are. They rolled over for this offer basically as soon as it came in the door, even though the stock had been trading much higher as recently as a few months ago. So if Elon wants to renegotiate now, as crazy as it seems, given that he's already signed a contract, it's not outside the realm of possibility at all. I don't think it's crazy at all. Why should he pay 5420 for a stock that's only at 4072 because he got involved in the first place and is still uh, hanging around? Given, given, given where the environment is for tech stocks, you could make an argument that it should be even lower or it could be lower than this. So why should he pay 5420 in this environment? Well, you know, look, if you or I buy a house and then the value of the house goes down while we're still closing, we can't come along and say, actually, I'd rather pay half for it, right? We've already signed a contract, but we're mere mortals and the laws of physics don't seem to apply to this guy. So we could very well get away with it. I don't know. Contracts fall through in the housing market all the time, it seems. Last thought to you on the, what this does to, to Musk, uh, his credibility, if anything, and how that relates to how you rate a Tesla share. I mean, this has been a black eye for Musk. And ultimately for Tesla, the fear now is that this starts to cascade in terms of the more and more distraction. At a time, you mean you need him more than you ever have because what we're seeing with China as well as just overall supply chain. So I think it's it's just a very, as I said, it's a circus show. You guys are fun to uh, kick this around with. Dan Ives, thank you very much. Casey Newton, I appreciate it too. Always fun with you as well. I'll see you again soon. Let's get to our Twitter question of the day. We're asking, will Elon Musk ultimately back out of his bid to buy Twitter? You can head to at CNBC Overtime. This is a very simple poll today. A, yes, B, no. We'll bring you the results later on in the show. Up next, betting on a bigger breakout. Ed Yardeni says stocks are heading back to all-time highs. I did a double take when I read that today. He's going to tell you why. We're going to test him on that thesis as well when we come back on the OT. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. We're back in overtime. It's time for a CNBC News update with Kelly Evans. Hey, Kel. The case that has generated outrage across the medical community, a former nurse who accidentally killed a patient has been sentenced to three years of probation. Radon Devault was convicted of criminally negligent homicide after she mistakenly gave the wrong medication to a patient. And Cordvot apologized, saying she will be forever haunted by what she did. And not guilty, the plea today for the man facing federal terrorism charges after last month's shooting on a New York City subway train that injured 23 people. The lawyer representing Frank James warned against a rush to judgment in the case. The White House says an envoy for hostage affairs will be overseeing Russia's detention of WNBA star Brittany Griner on drug charges. The court says she must remain in custody for another month now. Her lawyer thinks that's an indication her trial could start soon. And Robert McFarlane, the top aide to Ronald Reagan, who accepted legal responsibility for his role in the Iran-Contra scandal, is dead at the age of 84. Overcome by guilt, he unsuccessfully attempted suicide in 1987 because he felt he had so let down the country. Tonight on the news, intimate accounts of teenagers about their struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. I'm in for Shepard Smith, so I will see you guys then. Scott, back to you. All right, Kel, we'll see you then. Look forward to that. That's Kelly Evans joining us right there. All right, seems crazy to ask this question given the market environment right now, but is it really possible that stocks could hit new highs next year? Our next guest suggests it's likely. Ed Yardeni, the president of Yardeni Research, joins us now in overtime. Ed, it's good to see you. I got to say, I'm sure people hear this, their eyes roll, and they're like, yeah, Denny's always bullish. What do I expect? But seriously, <laughs> why? How can we? I'm serious. I mean, how? Right. How are we going to get to new highs given all of the headwinds blowing around us, Ed? Yeah, Scott, I haven't been particularly bullish on this year. I've been thinking we're going to have a lot of volatility. Uh, turns out that a lot of volatility has been on the downside. But uh, I'm, I, I believe that earnings are going to continue to be very strong. Uh, if you look at analyst consensus expectations, they continue to raise their uh, outlook for both revenues and earnings. Now, some of that is the fact that uh, stocks do a pretty good job. Companies do a pretty good job of being inflation hedges. The revenues obviously go up with prices. But what's really been phenomenal is uh, profit margins are staying at all-time record highs. I think companies are doing a phenomenal job of managing their profit margin. And that's really their number one job. They, ever since 2008, my sense has been that companies are managing to the profit margin. I think they're going to find the revenues growth to leverage up with record profit uh, margins. And so I think it's going to be uh, earnings led. Uh, right now, we're seeing a valuation led meltdown. Uh, but uh, while that's happening, analysts continue to raise their numbers. Now, of course, the analysts uh, don't see recessions happening. So that's my job. I don't think we're going to get a recession this year or next year. And so I agree with the analysts about their optimism for earnings. 
Well, you sort of led me into my next question. I mean, I have the greatest amount of faith in the companies of this country, too. Right. Maybe they do a better job than the analysts, though, Ed. And the fact that maybe the analysts are a little delusional, with <laughs> all due respect, not speaking of you directly, <laughs> Indirectly. about where earnings are going to go. I mean, Absolutely. for real, maybe, the, maybe yeah. the analysts just haven't caught up to everybody else yet. And there's no way, there's no way that earnings expectations can remain where they are. Well, actually, uh, I, I think there is a way, uh, as I mentioned before. I think we're going to see $240 a share for the S&P 500 this year and $260 a share next year. And uh, some of that is the fact that uh, as uh, inflation has been going higher, that's been uh, reflected in revenues and in earnings. And the only way it can be reflected in earnings is if, in fact, profit margins are staying at an all-time record high. Uh, look, Scott, uh, we, we had a slight decline in real GDP in the first quarter. Uh, it was a very funky uh, kind of quarter. But the reality is capital spending was an all-time record high. Consumer spending was at an all-time record high. Now, you can come back to me and say that always happens. You always get record highs right before recessions. Uh, but maybe I find myself in the uncomfortable position of actually agreeing with Fed officials, particularly Fed Chair uh, Powell, who's recently said consumers are in good shape. Businesses are in good shape. The banks are in great shape. Uh, there's no particular reason why this economy is going to go into a recession uh, with uh, interest rates having gone up already. So I, I think inflation is going to moderate. I think that'll help a lot in terms of uh, stabilizing the, the forward P.E. The forward P.E. came down to about 16, which is what I thought would be the downside of the range. And I think the range is six, actually 16 to 19 looking into, into next year. I think you're going to find that uh, companies uh, are going to deliver better than expected earnings, and uh, and investors are going to be surprised by that. It's investors I mean, you, that are taking their the earnings down, uh, their expectations down. Well, can you blame them? I mean, when and you and you cite the Fed chair, and you, you cite the the Fed chair, Ed. Yep. Yesterday, the Fed chair didn't exactly instill the most confidence in investors when when even he said he wasn't sure if they can engineer a, a, a soft landing, that right. it's, well, it's going to be difficult. I mean, I th that's the Fed chair. Scott, I don't like to be very short term about it. But as you said, this is uh, we've, we had a really nice Friday today. And that's after the kind of uh, uh, scary talk that we got out of the Fed chair. The Fed chair basically said that he can't control everything. He'd like to have a, a, a soft landing. I happen to think that we are going to get a soft landing. I think we're already there with real GDP growth running about 2%. I think what people are missing uh, with all the pessimism is companies are doing a great job of increasing productivity. I think you're going to see it more and more going into next year. The reality is the biggest problem companies have right now is labor shortages, and those are chronic. Uh, companies are starting to realize they're chronic, and they are spending like mad on technology and capital spending. So here we have all these technology stocks getting trashed as the fundamentals are getting better, stronger and stronger. Last question. This little bit, I hesitate to even call it a rally uh, because, you know, yeah. you can have egg on your face or omelet all over your suit in the matter of an instant in Absolutely. this kind of market. But this whatever we put together today and we managed to hold it in mm -hmm. large part to the close, does it have any kind of staying power? Do you have any confidence in that? Well, the the the, uh, the positive I take out of it is I think that we've seen a tremendous amount of air come out of speculative bubbles over the past year. It started last year with air coming out of the MEM stocks, coming out of the 
uh, SPACs and the, the uh, Kathy Woods kind of portfolio. And so uh, we finally got around to taking some air out of this speculative excess that we've had perhaps in the uh, big cap technology names. So now that they're in a bear market, I think it's really been quite extraordinary how much air has come out of speculative bubbles without causing a credit crunch, without causing a recession, with the economy still in fundamentally good shape. So I'm betting on the economy, I'm betting on uh, earnings, uh, and I'm I'm looking long term. I'm not looking today's action or or next week's action. I think a year from now uh, and over the uh, next few years, we're going to see still higher highs in the S&P 500. This is a correction. It couldn't turn out to be a bear market like 1987, but I don't think it's going to be anything like 2008. I think this is a buying opportunity. Some would say it's already a bear market. Some would say that. Look, well, it has, you're it has not been afraid. Years, for sure. You, you're not afraid to make a big call and better for us and our viewers. You're certainly not afraid to come on and argue your points and make your case. And we appreciate that. Ed, you be well. Thank you, Scott. All right. That's Ed Yardeni joining us there. Up next, the bull case for biotech. That sector is outperforming the broader market today. So is a bigger breakout building? We'll debate that. But first, Christina Partsinevelos is sweeping up some staggering stats as we close out a wild week. Christina? Yeah, wild week is an understatement because stocks roared back today, but they just couldn't cut it on a weekly basis. I'll break down the winners and losers along with a few stock pops. Hint, it involves gambling. Stay with us after this quick break. We're back in overtime. Stocks rallying to finish out a very volatile week for your money. Christina Partsinovelis has our rapid recap. Hi, Christina. Scott, we did it. We made it through another stomach-turning market week. Stocks rallied today thanks to a little help from various Fed speakers who indicated bigger rate hikes are off the table for now. The Dow, though, is having its worst week since January, down just over about 2% today. Its longest losing streak, I should say 2% this week, its longest losing streak since 2001, the year Shrek hit movie theaters. The S&P 500 closing in the red for the week, down over 2% as well, 2.4%, its longest losing streak in 11 years. And then last but not least, the Nasdaq ended the week in the red, down almost 2.5%, its longest losing streak in a decade. Consumer staples was the only sector to record a weekly gain, with real estate and financials the weakest among the group this week. A notable mover today, though, vegan meat maker Beyond Meat. The stock reversing course today, gaining 24, almost 25 percent after trading below its IPO price on Thursday. The company reported a bigger quarterly loss, but you got a lot of people that got in today. And then lastly, Las Vegas Sands, also soaring above 15 percent today. It appears the end might be in sight for Shanghai lockdown. So the entire sector, casino stocks, did really well uh, to end off the day. Scott? Yeah, I was looking at some of those stocks, Christina, like, you know, Beyond, as you said, Upstart was up 16 percent today. So a lot of those stocks over the last couple of days that got annihilated had a big, big move uh, to the later upside. in the day yesterday and then and then today. Uh, Do we call them bottom feeders or not? <laughs> you call them whatever you want. Call them whatever you want. Christina Parts and Evelos, you call them whatever you want. Your rapid recap. Have a good weekend. Up next, the you bull too. case for biotech. One halftime committee member is a banking on a big rally for that sector. We'll debate it in today's halftime overtime. But first, a message from Dan Suzuki of Richard Bernstein Advisors as CNBC celebrates Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage. My advice to the community would be, don't be afraid to stick out. Prove to people that you're unique and that you're much more than your racial identity. And don't forget that it's a two-way street. Just as you want to feel included in all of society's circles, 
make sure that you're doing your part to include others into your circles because how can you expect them to see the beauty of your culture and your individual personality unless you allow them to get close enough to see it for themselves. In today's halftime overtime, a bullish call on biotech. Halftime's Bryn Talkington making the case for that sector after its 25% decline this year and why it is now shaping up in her estimation as a longer-term buying opportunity. I think it is a fat pitch. Right now, you have crypto and biotech are trading very closely together. And if you think about it, people want cash flow, not cash burn right now. But, you know, Liz Ann Saunders had a great tweet the other day where more than 20% of NASDAQ biotech members are trading for less than cash. Less than cash. The last time you saw this was going back to 2002. So once again, if you can sift through the ashes or just buy like IBB or what have you, I think there's going to be some huge opportunities, but it's going to take some time. Let's now bring in Arius Asset Management CEO, Carrie Firestone. Carrie, it's good to see you as always. Thank you, Scott. You have a tremendous amount of experience, of, of experience in this space, right? You used to run mm-hmm. this area of, of funds for, uh, for Fidelity. What do you make of this call right here? So, Scott, I, I think it's very interesting. Of, of course, the biotech stocks have been clobbered. Outside of Amgen and, and Vertex, I think the small-cap stocks on average are down 60% or more since February 3rd. And we know that big pharma desperately needs good new drugs that can't come up with enough for themselves, and biotech is the breeding ground for pharma, for their ideas. And it costs a billion dollars to bring a drug to market, and so biotech companies start them, and then the bigger guys come in and swipe them up and take them to fruition. Um, So I think on the one hand, it makes sense. We just saw Pfizer buy Biohaven for $14 billion, but that was a drug that was approved, a very good migraine drug. Uh, The advantage to a, a basket approach like buying the XBI, the um, BTK, the IBB is that you don't have to as an individual or even as a portfolio manager make a decision if you don't have the capability of what drug is going to work because 1% of drugs that enter clinical trials, you know, get to get to de- development. I mean, or, or maybe sure. less than 1%. So, yeah, buying that basket approach is probably a good idea, but, but don't be fooled with the idea that if they have a stock price with cash more than that, that's the panacea because companies rely on venture, on new stocks, on on deals with pharma to have the money to operate since they're not profitable. They don't, well, forget about profitable, they don't have any sales. So they need many years of cash. They need many years of cash in order to get somewhere. That's why what Bryn said was so interesting to me as, as it relates to this conversation we're having. People want cash flow, not cash burn. I mean, let's be honest, you're you're describing an industry where, at least for many, there is big cash burn because of the desire to develop life-changing drugs. We we totally get that. Give me your best name in this space right now that you like. Yeah, well, I think of the large cap names. You know, if you look at Vertex, which had a drop just recently because it's not a stock we own, but because of their diabetes drug, there were only two patients or perhaps three that had been dosed when it worked. Um, That patient didn't need insulin, but the stock came down because the FDA said they needed more data or they needed to slow down on the dosing. Uh, And and that right here is, I think, attractively priced at the multiple. Um, And then, you know, if you're looking for something that's, um, you know, on the riskier side, Moderna. I mean, Moderna is a stock that has the platform mRNA. It's come down. I mean, it's one of the worst performing stocks over the last 
uh, several months, but was the best performing stock, I think, in uh, 2021 of the right. the S and P. So I, those are those are two names on different sides of the spectrum that I that I think are interesting here. But again, I think a basket approach is probably um, a decent and sensible idea given the high risk. It's very high risk and high reward in this industry. 100%. Kerry Firestone, have a great weekend. I'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us here in the OT. Up next is our two-minute drill. Two-minute drill time. Joining us now is Jessica Inskip, director at Options Play. Jessica, welcome. It's good to see you. Uh, Want to know what you think we're, we're doing here. Are we, are we bottoming? Did we bottom? Are we rallying? Where do you think we're going? Yeah, I think we're close to it. So according to the Dow theory, you look for a period of consolidation before there's a trend reversal of some sort. So that's what I'm looking for is that confirmation. There's a strong support zone based on Fibonacci retracement levels back in October 20 from 3484 to 437. I need to see that maintained to call that a bottom right at 3484 and then broken through 437 in order to see that as, a, as some momentum in a rally. So I think we're close. I just need some confirmation. Cautiously optimistic is the word I would use. Yeah, sounds like you're not ready to declare a bottom quite yet. Let's talk about a, a pick you like. It's TMO. Is that Thermo Fisher? That it is. Yeah. So I like the biotech, biotech sector as a whole. It offers really great um, secular growth and innovation like the tech sector, but with less global supply chain issues, which is something that's really a concern with the macro environment. This one has a great Profit margin of 24.5%. It consistently beats earnings. Its net income is increasing faster than revenue, and it's outperforming the S&P 500. So from a fundamental perspective, TMO is pick number one. All right. Good time. Uh, good weekend for you. Jessica Inskip, thank you so much for being here. Option Play Director, we will see you again soon. Up next is Santoli's last word when we come back. To the results of our Twitter question, we asked, will Elon Musk ultimately back out of his bid to buy Twitter. The majority of you said yes. 59% of you think that he backs out. Shares ended the day just under 41. That is well below the deal price of 54.20. Mike Santoli is with us for his last word. The last two Fridays have been horrible. Yes. This one, not so much. So how does that factor into your last good word? Friday. I think it was since early April Seemingly or something forever. like that. Um, I think it's what matters next after a week like this is the key question. We thought inflation data was going to be the tell this week. Not really. It was kind of a push. The bond market didn't react much to it. It really is about the tactical, technical concerns. We built up a ton of these kind of oversold fuel that the market can burn up with higher prices. A lot of good things about this rally today. I think you can say uh, just how broad it was. The fact that yesterday's low is looking okay. Mm. But how far does that get you is the big question. Well, you, you raised this issue earlier, and it's a good point about the up volume yeah. was better than 90%. Yes. Just like you look for confirmation to the downside that, um, you know, maybe the, the worst isn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, I mean, you can say, yes, that's great. You know, it's, it's this nice little breath. But even that, I think bulls and bears alike agree. You have maybe 5% upside, and it still doesn't change the overall story. So there's a good wall of worry out there. We'll see if the market can climb it. A lot of Fed speak coming up, too. That's so, the uh, other piece of it, yeah. Buckle, um, buckle your seatbelts. We'll see what next week brings. Thank yep. you, as right. always. Mark Lazary, Avenue Capital. He'll be with us exclusively on Monday. We can't wait for that. Hope you all have a great weekend. I'll see you then. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 